0: Hello and welcome to Stock Talk, a podcast series which brings together livestock specialists, vets and farmers to give you the tools you need to improve your business and embrace the future. Stock Talk is presented by myself, Robert Ramsey, and produced by Kirsten Blackwood as part of the Farm Advisory Service in association with the Scottish Government. So I'm joined today by Hugh Grierson, someone who is very well known in the organic world and certainly in the customer facing adding value a part of the industry so Hugh how are you this morning how are things in Perth?
1: Very good thanks Uh, the sun's starting to shine Um, things are looking up yeah
0: and what's how's your season been so far?
1: Uh, yeah, I think uh, quite a good one. Um, we tend to grow uh, wheat for our chickens to eat, um, so our combining started quite late, uh, just after all the rain, and we've had quite a dry uh, run at it so far. We'll see; we've got a little bit more to do, but a few dry days we will see it tidied up now.
0: Yeah, good, and we'll surely get them. We're still, we're still early yet. You know, yeah, yeah, that's it. You know, yeah, we were talking the other, the other day about you know we finished combining. A week ago and two or three years ago we weren't started for another week you know it's a it's amazing how how a harvest season changes over the years and how you know there's always a window for it so i'm sure those that have still got something left to do um i'll have it read up and probably by the time this goes out you'll have everything in store and heading towards winter so hugh can you describe your system in numbers so how many acres or hectares are you farming What's your stock numbers? How many staff have you got? That kind of story. Can you give us a a summary of what what your place looks like?
1: We have about a thousand acres of land within the family. We farm it as one company. Um, We employ 12 people um, and we grow livestock mainly, uh, and sell it through a butchery. So we have uh, 120 cows uh, and all the followers. We have 400 ewes uh, and fatten all the lambs. Nine sows fatten all the pigs. Uh, We kill 200 table birds a week for eating, uh, and we have about 1,000 laying hens uh, for eggs. Uh, do a few turkeys at Christmas, 200 turkeys at Christmas. Uh, and all of this goes through uh, basically a butchery business. Uh, we call it the meat sales um, uh, and we try and sell it. We do sell it all ourselves. Um, now, the, so we grow crops, but really just to feed the livestock. Um, so I'll have about 200 acres of wheat, um, a bit of oats um, to to feed the, the chickens um, and pigs.
0: Yeah, what what an undertaking! What a, a massively diverse business. And and the the one there's some big numbers in there, but the biggest number for me is 12 staff. That's, that's a you know it's a lot of people to uh, it's a lot of wages every week, and obviously a lot of turnover required to to keep those guys going.
1: Yeah, I used to be really proud of it. My father farmed the farm with with two men. uh, And I thought, you know, we'd done a a good job increasing jobs and employing 12 people. But it's become increasingly difficult to find those people now find people who, who enjoy the work. I want to do it um, so it it's yeah it's becoming a bit of a weakness now um we We need to find more and more ways of of saving labor but uh most of that will have to come out of the butcheries um and we're probably at too small a scale to to mechanize by ourselves um, but there aren 't many chicken butcheries in Scotland, uh, very very few. Uh, So it's hard to team up really with anyone and and try and uh, become more efficient
0: there. Yeah. And then I suppose on that one as well, there's the added complexity of the organic standards too. So you, you you could only really team up with a fellow organic poultry producer, couldn't you? You couldn't go organic and conventional together, could you?
1: Yes. Well, we certainly couldn't team up with the big boys who are, you know, putting down 9,000 birds an hour down their killing lines, um, stopping that line and cleaning it down so that you could put some organic down later would be unthinkable for them. Uh, but I think um, if it was a moderate sized business, you know, you could operate free range and organic through the same slaughter plant and, and kill and gut on different days, that sort of thing. It's, it's possible, a bit extra cost, but it's possible.
0: Yeah, so a, a lot going on. And, and I think that's something we don't maybe realize when we're talking about those added value businesses, those client facing businesses. There's often so many balls in the air and you're your focus isn't just on producing beef it's not just on producing a on producing lamb or chickens or whatever it is it's about selling a story to the public isn't it it's a, it's a open and honest job straight to the public
1: Yeah, I think um, the trend for businesses now is to specialize and get much better at doing one thing in particular. Uh, And and that's maybe one of the problems with organic is that it requires a rotation, it requires a mix of enterprises. And while that's a good strength for the environment, it's not uh, necessarily a strength for a business. You've got to, as you say, look at a a lot of different, keep a track of a lot of different things that are going on uh, and try and get them all right uh, your your attention is spread across uh, too many different things um, but it, it's probably essential for getting the environmental benefits that, that the organic can bring um, to have this mix of enterprises
0: it, it reminds me a lot of um gabe brown gets a lot of there's a lot of conversation about gabe, gabe brown and he's particularly his book dirt to soil and actually i've read it and listened to it and listening to it in a long drive was a really it was a really good use of time actually but the end of his book i think is where it's the was the epiphany for me was actually diversity of his point is diversity of crops and diversity of species is really important but actually diversity of enterprises within a business is equally important i think that's something that probably we're seeing at not a massive re- return to but there's a where we were maybe fifty, sixty years ago was more diverse businesses, and I think we we, we are seeing a slight reduction in the specialisation, and more more people starting to grow a wee bit more crop or putting livestock back into a uh, arable systems and and just at, trying to add a bit of diversity back into into systems, maybe not to the extreme that you've you've gone to, uh but certainly things are are beginning to change. And for me, that's where I think the collaboration has got a huge part to play is as you see, spreading your being a specialist, you're very focused on one specific thing. Being a generalist and doing many different things, you've got to spread that enthusiasm, spread the spread the focus, or employ or bring in other people to run those Specific additional enterprises. So, is that how yours works? Are you are you in control? Are you in charge of everything, or have you got staff to run specific enterprises?
1: Well, I keep trying to um, delegate, um, but um, sooner or later I seem to get pulled back into everything. I think that's the nature of life. Um, but. Yeah, I think, I think it's probably good that I am spread across everything. If you're going to do it, you have to understand it yourself um, and, and you have to be in contact with it yourself. So I, I think it is good that I'm spread across everything. Um, it just reflects, a, a, I think, a change of focus that will have to come from continually battering costs down in, in, the, in the agricultural sector to actually delivering more benefits. Um, and the only way to to farm naturally is to use the diversity to get the yields and outcomes you want. Um, you can grow a, a really large crop of ryegrass by itself, by specializing, but it relies on the, the, the intensive chemical fertilizer route. Uh, and once you take away that route and decide I'm not going to – To overuse these things, Um, the the organic way, the alternative way to get yield, to get benefits, uh, multiple yields out of a field is through diversity of of plants um, and diversity of cropping, rotations, all the old fashioned stuff. So I think what's going to drive a swift uh, a switch back towards diversity is is the realization that we don't want our food always produced on lowest cost basis. Uh, we, we want to get other things from it. We want to get more health uh, and provide more nutrients uh, and to be produced in a more natural way. And that will inevitably lead us down the, the diversity, the diversity of plants, of crops, of, of, of management. Um, and we'll be pushed that way increasingly in the future.
0: Yeah, and, and we're not here today to beat the drum about organics or about regen or about anything, but the fact is if we improve diversity of you know plants and grasswards or enterprises on farms all three bits of the three three legs in the stool the food production story the uh, or the, the high quality food production story the biodiversity story and the climate change story all benefit from that so there's there's something in this for everybody you don't have to be you know the stereotypical factory farmer or the stereotypical regen organic producer. You know there's there's something in in all of that for everybody. And you, as you see, government policy globally is evolving and pushing us. Or or and are they are we being pushed along that road or are we being helped along that road? I think for a lot of people, it's we're being helped along that road because it's actually going to be a positive for the business as well.
1: Yeah, I think um, conventional agriculture is is going to become more and more like organic. Um, We're seeing chemical after chemical being banned. Um, Gradually, there's going to be none left. Um, We're seeing more and more focus on on fossil fuels, on fertilizer. Um, I think it's gradually just going to be either legislated out or, or phased out or economically pushed out it's probably the biggest threat to organic farming is that conventional farming gives up using chemicals and fertilisers and we all become the same really Um, and I think that's the way the world's going gradually there's going to be steps forward and steps back but I think it's inevitable we're going to want to um, use less fertiliser and and less uh, chemical sprays Um, yeah
0: I think so the last two or three years of extreme fertilizer prices in our part of the world, we saw a huge swing towards not organics, but towards more organic systems. And and for me, that's where my, I'm quite passionate about organic systems and that we can go and borrow bits, steal bits from ideas from these areas and apply them to more conventional systems. And that it just puts everybody on the journey. The destination is different for everybody, but certainly that two or three years of reducing or increased fertilizer prices led to reduced use. And for most people who were farming well, you know, had good soil health and pHs were pHs, P's and K's were good. We actually saw really pretty good yields and pretty, you know, did pretty well with it. And I don't think we're going to go back to when we were just lashing on nitrogen willy nilly because it was cheap. You know, I think we have all learned a lot from that. That we that we shock that we had. And it's interesting, you know, the, the going forward there's going to be as you see the chemical stories changing, the fertilizer stories changing, and we're all learning. And the the important thing is we all talk about it and share ideas and and discuss what we're doing, challenge each other, and then we actually land up 20 years from now in a better place than we are just now.
1: Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, I'm I'm sure we will. Uh I'm there's There's so much pressure. Um, I suppose fashions will change, but um, there's always pressure from the environment. There's always pressure from people's health um, and uh, and the quality of food. I think that's maybe something that will be, there'll be more pressure on in the future. I think people are going to look at the food they're buying. It's probably going to be highly priced food and they're going to say, what's this doing for me? Is it improving my health? Is it improving the environment? Um, and also, do I actually enjoy eating it? And, and that's one that I think is currently underappreciated. Um, I suppose I'm a beef farmer and a, a beef butcher, uh, and I breed cattle, uh, and I'm spending a lot of time trying to improve the eating quality of my, my beef uh, through breeding right through the herd from the beginning. And I find myself on by myself. And I wonder why. Why is there so little effort going into improving the, the eating quality of our food? Um, and then I think realize, well, nobody's paying for it. You go to any uh, meat buyer, uh, any abattoir and sell your cattle. It doesn't matter what sort it is. It can be big, small, lean, fat, marbled, unmarbled, tough as hell or beautiful to eat. And you get a price per kilo. Doesn't matter. There's no quality measure of any sort. Well, there is a quality measure, but it's generally the Europe scale is uh, generally how much yield the 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 abattoir is going to get off the carcass. There is no eating quality measure used in anywhere. And then I look around other industries and I realize it's the same right through. Uh, Nobody's worried about eating quality, and I'm sure as food gets more expensive and customers get more picky. They're going to demand that it actually tastes good, uh, and I think that might be uh, the next big force that, that starts pushing us. In.
0: Yeah. So the meat eating quality thing is something that frustrates the living daylights out of me. That you know we've got. I was in Argentina ten years ago, and things are very, very different in Argentina. And we often look at or, or criticize South America for being, you know. Poorer beef, cheaper produced, lower standards, no environmental credentials, and and actually their beefs outstanding and it's consistent and that's the key is it's consistent. The breeds are consistent, the systems are consistent, and the handling at the abattoir is abattoir and by the butcher is consistent. We've got so much diversity, I and mean, we were talking about how diversity is a good thing, but within the industry, we've got so many different animals and different systems. It's very hard to get that level of consistency. And and when you if you're looking at it with a very critical eye, the consumer experience, if you go to the supermarket and buy cheap steak, which most people are forced to do at the moment, that steak experience isn't very good. You know, there's some some lean, poor eating steak out there. And as you say, the focus is entirely on well, I mean we're paid for big bums and lean carcasses. And actually we need to move towards that, that meat eating quality place. And and there are a significant percentage of the, of our consumers that would would happily pay more, slightly more for something that they knew was better quality to eat, better for them, had a better story behind it. And perhaps that's where your your usual customer is, your on-farm customer is, I'm not sure. But certainly in, in the the conventional retail environment, we really just sell beef in a packet, don't we? We don't we don't diversify, we don't set anything apart.
1: Yeah, I think um I have a range of Customer types. There are some, and I think increasingly there are a lot of customers that seek out an organic source of food. That's that's what they want. Um, but you know, I've been doing it a f- few years, and it wasn't always like that. There weren't so many of them, and I spent a lot of the early years selling my meat um, on on the basis of its quality. To look particularly locally around Perth, there wasn't a huge organic market. And I actually found when I was speaking to people, I would sometimes sell them my meat and the farm and everything else. And I would tell them it was organic. And I I'd suddenly see them backing away from me, literally standing in front of me and leaning back. And I, I realized I'd lost the sale. Uh, and the, the organic didn't always help me. Uh, and very often uh, what, what I'm selling locally is quality beef, good eating quality beef, traditional beef. Often it's to people who who say they remember good beef in the past, but they can't get it now. Uh, or, or a younger group who, who are just discovering the joys of marbled beef or, or whatever. But yes, um, a large part of my sales is based on the quality of my meat rather than the fact that it's organic. Um, the two go together very well. I think one of the reasons that it is quality meat is because I follow the organic principles. They, that, they, they help out along the way, particularly in the chicken. Um, our chickens have to be 12 weeks old at slaughter, which is more than double the, the, the age of a standard chicken. I think they're down to 35 days now in the industry from, from egg to, to supermarket shelf. Um, so that doubling of the, of the age just can't help but improve the eating quality of, of, of the meat. Um, and so the two go together, but yeah, the, the, the quality is really important. Uh, and I think it's going to be increasingly important.
0: So Hugh, you mentioned that your organic journey started in the early two thousands, but was moving to organic was that a business decision or was it uh, something deeper down in you so are you are you organic at heart or are you was it a organic head decision a business head decision
1: So yes, I was always interested in organics. I I had that interest. Uh, I I wanted to farm in a better way for the environment. Uh, I wasn't completely happy with the amount of sprays we were using, their effects on the on the small life on the farm, the insects, the bugs, and the bees. And uh, I wasn't entirely happy with um, using fertilizer. So I I had a strong interest in farming organically. But I suppose what triggered me to make the move the jump into it was when it became more of a business decision uh, the organic maintenance payments the in- organic conversion payments were introduced in the late 90s and i think it was part of a wave of people who who moved into organics at that time assisted by the uh, organic main- the organic conversion payments Um, the business, my father employed two people. Um, it, it it had to work financially, the move to organics and, uh, prior to that it still seemed a bit seat of the pants but um that assistance and the increasing market for organics at the same time meant it it felt like a more of a business decision to actually take the step back in the 90s the late late 90s and and get our uh our certificate by by 2000
0: quite quite a journey and quite a, an interesting story and i think that's where the the successful part of the organic so obviously there's, a, there's incentives to go organic at the moment and if those incentives are just about the money or, or if, if you're only going organic just for the money it, it's going to be a difficult change to your business whereas if it's part of you if it's part of your kind of mindset the assistance is a really good help along a road that you're already traveling on so um I was quite
1: young then, really, I suppose, and the things when we made that step, and organic has continued to grow on me. As I said, that I made the step, well, my interest in it was largely from an environmental point of view, which is a very strong point of organics. But most of the customers I supply now are probably in it for the health benefits of organic. Um, there, there was a Swedish supermarket a couple of years ago did a, a study on what they were actually doing for their customers by selling them organic food. It was more expensive. You know, What was the benefit for the customer? Uh, and they measured the uh, pesticide levels in the family's urine. Uh, they had previously eaten uh, conventional food um, and they put them on an organic diet. Uh, within three weeks, uh, most of the the pesticide levels in in the people's body fell by 80%. Um, and that's huge. We as farmers tend to imagine that we put pesticides on the fields and they get washed off and they sort of disappear somewhere. And in fact, quite a large amount of them uh, end up in the human body. Uh, and when you start thinking like that as a consumer who's buying their food and, and getting a higher level of pesticides, which they don't necessarily want, uh, and you can choose the low level by switching to organic food, uh, I think you can see that uh, a lot of people are choosing that low level uh, for their own health, Uh, even though it probably can't be proven that you have a longer life because of it. I think most people would just look at what it says on the can and say, actually, I'll I'll choose the low levels. Um, So I think yeah i think if you're thinking of moving to organics um because there's a maintenance payments um a lot of people most of the people who who were in the wave of organic conversion that i took part in most of them have dropped out to be fair um for one reason or another mainly there wasn't a market for it uh for what they did um but so i think you should i think it, yeah you should Believe in it. Uh, you should probably have a fridge full of organic food. If you're not eating organic yourself, um, maybe you're not sufficiently committed to to weather the ups and downs of it, because it isn't a free ride. Um, you know, recessions, people cut back on, on organic food in recessions, and, and it's very hard to get a premium um, when when the when industry is oversupplied with 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 food. Um, so yeah, I think you, you should be you should look at the um, the incentives offered uh, and ask whether you've really got a, a proper market uh, for your food that will withstand the recession, um, and whether you're actually interested in it enough to to stick with it. Uh, and take the good with the bad because you probably are going to have to put up with a, a few more weeds on the farm. Uh, the older generation, your father, looking over your shoulder, he's probably going to notice every one of them and remind you on a daily basis. Um, but it's uh, if you if you believe in organics, uh, then um, take the money and and make the step when it's when it's there. Um, and it's certainly done me very well. I've had all sorts of opportunities to do, to develop the business, uh, which I wouldn't have had if I'd stayed conventional. Um, the, there's plenty of butchers out there selling co- conventional meat. Uh, the organic gave me an opportunity to to be different, to stand out, tell a story uh, and build up a customer base. Um, I, I'm sure I couldn't have done it without organics.
0: I suppose you, your area, so you're in, in Perthshire. Who, who is your average consumer? So who, is there an average consumer or do you have, you've obviously, there's a spectrum of, of incomes there as well. Who, who do you target marketing at or who's, who's your average customer?
1: Yeah, um, we've got a, as you say, we've got a wide range of customers. They, they do come from all walks of life and, and places, but um, you've got to say there's a concentration of families in Edinburgh and Glasgow. The, that's a key market. Um, you know, middle-class families uh, that do have a bit more money to spend uh, that can afford to buy organic food um, and, and looking for the healthiest option for their family. That's definitely a, a big market. Um, but we do also have a, a the second biggest market would be People who don't necessarily live in the cities could be spread out. We, our couriers deliver anywhere in Britain, and they want the best rib roast that money can buy. Uh, you know, they, they just want, they want quality of meat. Uh, very often they're entertaining. They want something to, to put on a table for their friends and, and be able to show that how good it is and, and what it does for them. Um, and, and they're a completely different market. Um, and then probably the third group is people who are worried about their health, very often with good reason. There's been a scare in the family somewhere, um, and they, they maybe didn't think they had money to spend on organics, but that scare has changed their perspective. Um, and they are now trying to live a much healthier life and are making the, the, the sacrifice, isn't it usually an economic cost to, um, to build organic into that? Um, and for these people, we can help out. You know, they don't have to buy the best rib roast that money can buy. You know, that has a premium on it. But we have many other undervalued cuts um, that that they can we can talk about and and get them a, an organic diet on a on a much lower level, um, a much lower cost. Sorry. Uh, and then, if I, if I can add to that, there's always uh, a diet fashion. Um, And you you never quite know what it's going to be. Right now, uh, there's a lot of people going on to uh, carnivore diets, uh, 100% meat diets. Um, They're not eating vegetables um, or or plants of any sort. And if you go on the Internet, you'll, you'll find the reasons why, basically summarized by plants are trying to kill you. Um, uh, I'm not sure I'm a, an advocate of that, but I am a butcher uh, and I sell meat. And so I'm happy to supply these customers. Uh, and generally, again, if they when they realize their diet is 100% meat, uh, it has to be good meat. It has to be the best meat. Uh, and so they very often end up uh, as an organic supplier or an independent supplier who can talk to them about exactly how the meat's produced, um, what the diet of the animal is, you know, whether it's been vaccinated. They, they have a lot of detailed questions uh, which you can answer uh, and try and help them out with that diet. But we've seen other diets come and go in the past and I, I'm sure next year there'll be something else that I get a lot of phone calls about, but at the moment it's probably carnivore diet.
0: From a marketing perspective, so we've, as an industry, we've had the vegan challenge, and I think probably that's, I think it's been pretty good for us. It, how big an issue has that? So, and I think that movement it won't go away, and it, and it probably shouldn't go away. There's a, you know, there's plenty people and plenty businesses involved in there, and that's that's all okay. Uh, the has the, did the vegan conversation through COVID and beyond did that have a big impact in your business or was it a wee bit of a storm in a teacup?
1: Um, I don't think it had a big impact, but it, it was there. Uh, and all our customers are thoughtful people who think about their food. So they were all aware of it. And the first uh, veganary um, where they got a lot of support and traction. I definitely saw a drop in sales, there's no doubt. Um, but over the longer term, I think for every customer of mine who went vegan or organic, oh, sorry, vegan or vegetarian, there was uh, another customer who was buying um, you know, cheaper meat and through all the publicity decided to upgrade to, uh, to eating better meat. So, I think for every one we lost at the top we we gained another one at the bottom at the at the time um and uh, it didn't it didn't trouble us too much. The other thing i've got to say is a large proportion of my customers are vegetarian you You wouldn't believe how many vegetarian people I speak to um, Very often, they buy the food for the family, and the rest of their family isn't vegetarian, but they are themselves um and so they'll again they'll make the effort to find the best meat that they can uh, and they end up on a a phone call or at a farmer's market speaking to me uh, and i try and you know show them that i think mine's the the best meat they can buy and uh, that's so they become quite loyal customers Uh, we have vegetarians and vegans who buy meat for their dogs Uh, again the same thing they they for themselves, they won't eat, uh, you know, meat. But they know their dog is meant to be a carnivore or omnivore, and uh, they will buy meat for their dog. Um, it's a funny old world out there. So, um, I, I, I. Yeah, I spend a lot of time talking to vegetarians, um, not so much vegans, but um, I have a lot of customers who are, and it doesn't seem to stop them all buying a bit of meat now and again. So I go with it. It's it's not a problem, each to their own, um, and it, it'll sort itself out however, however the public decides to go in the long run. You know, it, it, that's where we'll end up.
0: Yeah, and, and what's clear, you know, it, it's so interesting that, Social media and the media are very polarizing and you know we have one um, focus and actually what you're describing there is a a raft of different options different people everybody's unique everybody's needs are unique and actually your business aims to meet the needs of the vast majority of that the people along that um, that spectrum of the population and, and I don't know if that m- media wise i don't think that that conversation comes out that actually the journey for most people is perhaps, you know, if we're on a less meat and better quality meat journey, there's plenty of people on that journey. There's the carnivore people, there's the people who've tried vegan and come back off it. There's the people who are vegetarian, flexitarian. We only really hear from the very extreme end of one of those of, you know one very extreme end of that that conversation, so it's really interesting and actually quite reassuring to hear that there is a strong and probably growing market for the type of production the type of produce that you're you're selling so it's it's really quite interesting the one I'm keen to ask is. As a, so i'm a non organic producer who i'm I'm really keen to focus on what you guys do and beg, steal and borrow the good ideas f- from organics and apply them to my own system and have a strive to have a lower input system. perhaps we'll end up organic someday who who knows but is there anything from an organic producer's perspective that you look at my system? And you're, you know, are not jealous, but you, you miss doing some of the conventional processes. Is there anything on the list that you really wish could be made to be organic?
1: I've never thought about that one before. Um, I've always thought the other way around. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Yeah. It is just the ease uh, and the convenience of being able to solve problems, uh, isn't it? It's, we've probably got a, a solution to most problems. They're just all more difficult in organics.
0: Um This is actually good. This is a, a pause and a difficult answer. As you not didn't come straight back at me with Roundup or the <laughs> uh, Docstar or something. You know, it's uh, it's interesting, and I know some of the, the, the organic subsidy people. So the people who went there, and, and rightly, you know, for some people, it was a very there was some very strong a uh, market signals or or subsidy signals that that was a good business move to go organic. Those guys who maybe didn't have quite the organic mindset did miss certain items from the non-organic toolkit. Um, But as you, as you mentioned earlier too, that toolkit is actually becoming smaller for most of us. Anyway, you know, there's items fall out at chemical options and, and, even in the last few years, fertilizer options have become too expensive that we're probably not that far apart. Uh, open-minded conventional guy and a, and a true organic person probably aren't that far away anymore. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and I think,
1: um, uh, yeah, I think, um, organic and conventional are going to grow together. Um, there's a move in the organics to try and make the um, organic food more accessible. Um, so I think it's going to hold, not going to increase its standards very much. It's going to hold the standards and try and bring down the cost of production. Uh, and from the other direction, and lawyers are, are gonna make it more and more difficult to, um, to do it, to use chemicals and sprays. So I think conventional organic are definitely going to grow together uh, and probably merge somewhere in the future. Uh, And the point of difference will be something different. Um, Something like the the Pasture for Life organisation that's, or a regenerative certificate will will take the place of organic. It's it's entirely possible.
0: Yeah, I actually heard a really interesting comment on a a Fast Connect group that we took to see Michael Shannon um, at Damn Delicious. So. We were there as the group was there effectively as as a consultant to Michael. So Michael had a few questions, a few how do how do we take this branding, this a uh, or or branded product, how do we take this forward? So it was a really good stretch for a pretty open-minded group. But there was a comment made that day by Gordon Caldwell from Caldwell's Veg in Turnbury. Um and his point was my, one of the questions from the group was, or, or actually, we posed to the group was, should Michael go organic? And most people said yes straight off the bat. And then Gordon asked the question, "Does your consumer trust you?" To which Michael said, "Yes." So Michael's very much across the counter. Does have quite a bit of box scheme stuff and an online stuff as well. But there's a there's a a, a big cross cross counter. Um, consumer and the answer was yes the consumer trusts you and it trusts him with the system that he's running and gordon's point was what's the point in becoming officially organic and becoming you know going through the the process of and the certification process isn't that arduous or that that big a deal but was the was it going to add any more value or should michael go down a different road and sell his story even better put that cost and that energy into selling his story even better to his consumer and it was a really bit of a light bulb moment for me for actually what is organic and actually organic is a stamp that you put on to give a consumer that you don't know or, or, or on the broad a broad scale you don't know the consumer the, the consumer is pretty detached from you so you give it the organic stamp to say that this is the standards that these are produced to if you're selling direct to a consumer that you know do you think you need to be organic um it it depends how many
1: people you can shake the hands of if you can shake the hands of enough customers and explain your system looking them in the eye and you've got a nice simple message that they all understand um then of course you can do it without the certification But as you grow bigger, it gets harder to reach every person and and explain your system. Um, And and as your system gets more complex, it gets harder to explain it. That was part of my move um, to not feeding the cattle any grains. I never felt I fed them very much. I grew some homegrown oats, uh, and in the winter, they'd get silage. And then if I felt they needed a top-up, they'd get a bit of homegrown oats. And I felt that was quite acceptable. And most of the customers I explained it to felt that was quite acceptable. But it's a really muddy message and, and people would come on and, and ask me or send an email saying, do you feed grain? And if I answered yes, they imagined a barley beef system or, or a feedlot in the USA. It was, it was polarized. Um, and I had to actually get hold of that person and talk them through so much uh, to explain that you know a little bit of homegrown oats in a trough beside a lot of silage really wasn't a problem and I couldn't do it I just simply couldn't get to enough people and make that case now maybe I'm not good enough on the internet maybe I could have put out a tiktok you know explanation that would have got to enough people and explained it to them but I actually found it was much easier to go and get a certification uh, from Pasture for Life that I was pasture-fed only, uh, and I, there was no grain in the diet. And when people ask me now, do I feed grain? I just say no. It ends the conversation. Explains my, the situation. It's so simple; they understand it. Uh, and the, the visions of this a um, uh, barley beef system or this feedlot in Texas just leaves their mind, and they go away reassured. So. In addition to, be, yeah, you need, you've got to find your own way um, between how many people you can talk to and explain your system to and how much you need a, a simple answer that's, that's answered by a certificate, which can be very useful to, as you, to, to reach a lot of people and explain a situation very clearly simply you need simple explanations As soon as you start a long-winded explanation of your system you've lost them it has to be really simple the elevator pitch as they say but even shorter sometimes um so it's possible but
0: difficult um yeah and i suppose your your elevator pitch is your organic and pasture for life full stop
1: Yeah, those are two easy things that people, a lot of people understand before I start the conversation or think they understand, sometimes not as well as they think, but they're out there. They've already learned. If they've been on the internet, they've already learned about them. uh, And I can just very easily in two steps, lock myself into that story. Um, I know other people who, who don't go down that route and you know, explain it to everyone, but it's it's a lot of explaining to a lot of
0: people. Yeah, yeah, and and I can imagine your your role. You've got so many hats to wear as a beef producer, a sheep producer, a poultry producer, a butcher, a marketer, a business manager, a boss. Uh, you know, there's there's so many hats, and and you mentioned that TikTok and the the work, the marketing, the free marketing work we can do. The issue with all of that is how much time it takes to do it, to do it well. Cause sometimes or most times not doing it at all is better than doing a half baked effort at it.
1: Yeah. Uh, and we it links back to scale as well. Uh, I, I know a lot of producers spend a lo- most of their time on their marketing and get that really right. And so, uh, But they generally have a limited amount for sale and make the very most of that by getting the, the maximum margin for a small amount, which is probably common sense in business terms, maximizing your margin, not your, your turnover. Um, but yeah, linking back to a question you asked me earlier, what do I miss from conventional, I've realized the answer speaking to you there, it's it's about scale. Um, what I miss is that doing everything organically, I'm doing it on a small scale and that makes it expensive. My meat is probably on average 50% more expensive than than conventional the amount that's necessary due to the organic regulations probably isn't anything like that amount. Uh, Probably half of that extra cost is simply because I'm doing it on a small scale. Now, I try and sell that to people. You know, the the chickens are hand-slaughtered. They're not done in a great big mechanized line. It's got advantages, but the scale pushes up our costs more than they need to be and makes... Organic expensive, if organic became the mainstream and they were putting it through all the 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 large factories that um, the price of it could come down quite considerably, uh, and that would make it adopted or, or you know people more people would buy it simply because it was cheaper um, so I think yeah that 's the one thing that organic is really missing is uh, the scale necessary to bring its costs down to where conventional costs are. Uh, It's not on the farm, it's in the the, the productions, the the factories and so on.
0: Yeah, and and it will be interesting to see. I think I expect the organic sector is going to grow over the next few years and it'll be interesting to see how that we often talk about critical mass in a in a negative way talking about you know critical mass maintaining critical mass enough numbers to go through abattoirs but actually the organic side may be the the opposite that we're actually needing to grow or we are needing to grow numbers in order to get the critical mass to to have a viable large-scale slaughterhouse processing facilities all that that type of thing and, and and I think the direction of travel is certainly towards growth in the sector. I don't know how much it's going to grow. I know there's some some aspirations to grow it really big, but there is also going to be a need for a a conventional for conventional systems too. So it will it will be interesting to see where we go um and whether we can have a really viable commercial large scale organic stuff where you don't need, not everybody wants to run the very diverse business with the butchery and all the staff that goes with it. Some people do want to be organic and just produce for the masses. So uh, again, it'll be interesting. We were at a meeting last uh, or just on Tuesday there and discussed, we were were actually, it was about about simplifying sheep systems and looking at, uh, you know, what we can do to make things reduce labor and, and make things easier. And what we were asking people to do was think about lambing 2024 and then think about lambing 2034 and how, how different that's going to be. We then gave them or, or kind of the shot across the bows was think back to 2014 because most people's 2014 was pretty identical to what 2024 is going to be. However, I think the point of what I'm, what I'm trying to make here is there's change, change, we all know it things over the next 10 years are going to be different to what they're at just now and change in this context, change is good. So Hugh, we're in a time of change. You know, th- I think everybody is feeling it, th- the industry's moving, policy's moving, things are changing. What does your business look like in maybe five years down the line? What what changes do you think are on the horizon for you or are you pretty well set, quite happy with the model and the uh, wins in your sales?
1: Well, uh, we're a family business, so it always comes back to our personal situation. Um, I'm 55. Uh, I have two sons, neither of whom want to farm or uh, at least not as their day job. Um, So um, the last great idea I had, I I put to my wife and she said, yeah, that's grand, but uh, how old will you be when that comes to fruition? And it's like, oh, yeah, 67. Um, Right, well, she said, maybe you should think about that. And it's like, yeah. So it does start to influence your decision-making, your own personal situation. Uh, I have lots of bright ideas that if I was 20 years younger, I might jump off and run off with. Uh, But I'm probably going to moderate that. Um, And I suppose what I would be more interested now is in tie-ups with people who are 20 years younger and who are ready to invest around it. Um, one of the guys that I employ on the farm has just started a, a charcoal business um, and um, he's he's using wood from our farm, using our delivery van to uh, deliver it around to the customers, basically our own customers. Um, and that's sort of working quite well. And I think that's maybe the way forward is to use other people to build niche businesses around The infrastructure we have, which is land, uh, a website, uh, and a delivery van, those are the key pieces of infrastructure that we can produce, sell, and and deliver with. The the delivery is the hardest bit. Um, I, I could double my sales overnight if I could find a convenient way of getting my products from the farm into the customer's fridge. It's that is the limiting factor. There's plenty of people out there who want to buy from me, but they're out at work all day. Um, the couriers are unreliable or, or they'll leave it. They won't leave it without someone there. They don't shop in the independent shops. It's, it's, it's that last mile. So if we have the, the key parts in place, the three big structures, I think um, we can start looking for add-ons such as charcoal, um, uh, to work with us, uh, tie-ups um, to to keep paying for that infrastructure and going forward and making it more convenient, getting better delivery routes, um, so that we can make it more convenient for people to buy from us.
0: Yeah, I find the collaboration story really exciting. You know, I think that's there's so many people talking about, you know, right across the industry probably being forced to talk about things like that because labor is hard to find. Reliable staff are very, you know, difficult to find very, it's a very competitive market. So you get them trained up and then they move on. And actually that collaboration, tying someone, not tying them in, but building a relationship with them that is of mutual benefit works across the board. I mean, we've got a, um, it's a crop cast, our sister podcast, um, episode on, a grazing winter cereals. So there's a whole host of opportunity out there to get, you know, that, that story is all about getting livestock back onto arable farms without getting in the way of arable gross margins. So how can we add value to it? How can we re- reduce disease and pressure on crops? And how can we actually, how can the other person expand their business or a uh, get a foothold in the industry? You know, there's so many opportunities for collaboration Um, that I think we're only just scratching the surface of it at the moment. I think, I hope 10, 20 years from now, the industry is vastly different and we're a lot keener and more able to share and, and support each other for mutual benefit. So Hugh, for people listening, obviously we are mostly a farming audience, but we're also all farmers are consumers too. So if we are looking for, you know, Having listened to what you've said, interested in in looking at your produce and how it, how it works, and and hopefully for your sake, uh, maybe buying some of it as an option too. Where do we, you know, wh- where where is your what's your website or what's what's the route to market for you?
1: Um. So yes, we we have a website. Uh, it's HughGrierson.co.uk. Um, and we, you can go on there and, and buy any of our produce, beef, lamb, pork, chicken. Um, yeah, so we can deliver anywhere in Britain with couriers through that website. Um, but also you can phone the office, call into the farm and pick up meat. Um, we supply some shops, uh, around and about, um, yeah, there's a range of ways to market.
0: Yeah. So we all put that website and the show notes as well just in case anybody wants to have a wee a wee click and a look um, and you know see all the vast array of stuff that you've got to offer. Hugh I'm very conscious you've got an awful lot on you've got a plenty happening out there so with that I'm really grateful I've really enjoyed our conversation today. Um, There's so much to go at and to to think about from that and really, you know, just, I'm sure we could talk for another three or four hours on on organics without any any major problem, but I don't know if anyone wants to listen to me for three or four hours. So I think we'll just probably draw a line under it there just now. Thank you very much and certainly wish you, you and your family all the best for the future, uh, for exciting years to come.
1: Thank you very much. You'll have to come back in 10 years and see what we have been doing.
0: We'll, we'll book you in. <laughs> And now for a quick animal health update from SRUC Vet Services.
2: I'm Tim Gerrity, I'm a vet working for SRUC Vet Services out of the Aberdeen Surveillance Centre. In our sheep flocks, we should be focused at this time of year on considering challenges from iceberg diseases and lameness. For iceberg diseases, um, focus on thin ewes that have failed to gain weight despite good grass uh, post weaning. These are a a very high indicator of an underlying problem. In lots of flocks, you might not have any such ewes that don't gain weight, but if you do, and certainly if you have more than one or 2% of those thin ewes not gaining weight, that is an indicator that there could be an issue. There is funding available through the Preparing for Sustainable Farming to help you investigate this with your vet, so take advantage of that funding and uh, learn something new about possible infectious challenges likewise there's funding from the same grant uh, for lameness control in sheep we're just ahead of the peak risk period especially for infectious lameness such as scald and foot rot and it's a great time to sit with your vet think about the challenge in your own flock and and review how well you can control lameness as we move into the poorer weather turning to cattle uh, we're just ahead of the peak risk period for pneumonia. As the weather deteriorates, it gets more challenging to control pneumonia in cattle. Um, And we will add into that in many systems, weaning, housing, mixing, and transport. And that combination of stress factors makes it very likely that uh, we will increase cases of pneumonia in the next few months. And again, there's money available through preparing for sustainable farming grant where you can review pneumonia risks in your own herd, including what's causing it, which vaccines are uh, needed and what your uh, risk is like in the air quality of your housing. Uh, And uh, use that money now to try to mitigate as much risk as you can through into the back end
0: if you enjoyed listening to stock talk you may enjoy some of our other podcasts such as crofting matters which is a 12-part monthly show that discusses all things crofting in scotland including livestock management you may also enjoy our new podcast agriculture which tells the stories of some interesting and influential people in the agricultural industry just search crofting matters or agriculture wherever you get your podcasts from
1: The Farm Advisory Service Podcast. Audio advice on livestock, crops and soils, environment, rural business and more. Brought to you in association with the Scottish Government.